Hello and welcome to today's Future of Housing Propcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined today by Shemez Alibi, who's Managing Director and Head of Community Housing at Man Group GPM, which is the global private markets engine of Man Group. And I'm also joined by Patrick Bergen, who is the CFO at Ilka Homes. Hi, Patrick. Let's start with you. So you've come into uh, a modular housing business from 13 years in the listed housing sector at Crest. What have been some of the things that you've learned over the period of time? You took Crest public. You've obviously been through a few cycles over the years. How has the recent recession and the uplift that we're obviously seeing in the market how is that comparing to, to previous cycles? Yeah, I think, Andrew, what's been really interesting is that, uh, as you say, when I was at Crest, I came to Crest in 2006 and exited in 2019 and frankly saw um, the whole of the cycle in that period. So joined in 2006 when the market was on a real high, um, possibly not a, a very sustainable one, rampant price inflation, incredible land prices, thin margins. 105% mortgages, they, they were quite good as well. Um, well, they were, they, were, they were good for people who gave the keys back when, uh, when it all uh, hit, the, hit the fan. But, um, you know, so I think I've seen a real range. But at the time, um, we would have said our principal challenges were, did people have a job and could they get a mortgage? And if it was a tick in both boxes, then we were off to the races. Uh, The credit crunch clearly meant that, sadly, some people lost their jobs and very many lost access to the mortgage market. Um, And then, frankly, from 2013 and the launch of the Help to Buy scheme, mortgage access was once again opened up very widely for the new build sector uh, and employment was also quite good and so um, what we were off again on a, on, a, on a good run but I think what I saw also emerging subsequent to that was some new challenges mm. because a very vibrant property market also brought affordability challenges and the the gap between average earnings and average house prices opened up to become extremely wide and I think this is now this is now I think a another key challenge so in addition to employment and access to finance there's just the absolute affordability of housing which has become a real challenge in the market and in society mm. and um, those 15 years it's it's massively it's massively huge wider, it's huge it? we've gone from sort of people used to think about four times earnings being what you needed to buy a house now it's about 10 times earnings yeah well exactly that was good Let, but let's bring in shemez shemez alibi man group one of the uk's oldest investors most uh, most well respected um, relatively new strategy you've got looking at housing you've been you've been in the business for a couple of years now having having been one of the first players previously to to go into social capital when you were at cheney what what's taken man group so long and, and what's behind the current strategy that you've got yeah i think if we go back to the institutional involvement in, in the housing markets in the uk historically it had always been on the house builder side Coming out of the, the, the financial crisis in 2007 and these issues of affordability, we've really seen the need or the shift into home rental away from home ownership. So home rental has gone from about 10% as a market tenure or home rental has gone from 10% as a market tenure to about 19% in those 15 years that Patrick was talking about. But it was a much it was much bigger 100 years ago, wasn't it? 100 years ago, it, yeah, was, it, it was the majority. It's, it's been cyclical, right? And I think in this current upturn, private capital really started getting involved in the last six or seven years. You saw a lot of American institutional capital getting into the private rented sector. From a man perspective, a man group perspective, 
for us, how we wanted to ask ourselves, how do we do things differently from traditional forms of delivery? And I think man has always looked at trying to deliver investors value in different ways. And from our perspective, the one thing that has stood out in that last 15 years is exactly what Patrick pointed out is this runaway problem of affordability. So it has taken a while and there's been a few proof of concepts along the way, but I think we've set our sights now on addressing this problem of affordability in the housing markets. And that's, that's an interesting evolution. And, and how are you doing that then? I mean, unless, unless you're making stuff available at sub-market prices, because lots, I mean, this is one of the, one of the, the problems of trust that the industry has in the UK. We talk about affordable housing, but actually what we really mean is housing that's a little bit cheaper than the current unaffordable housing that is, is offered to most people which when you, when you put that to, to people on low salaries, they, they look at it and they laugh. Yeah, I think there's a real trust issue the sector has. So we, we've set out by, by setting out our stall as a socially responsible investor. So that's embedded into the governance of our documents. And we're completely transparent to our investors and the investment community around what we're doing in terms of these questions of affordability. But when we look at affordability, I think it's a generic term, right? You have to look in each area of the country. You well, it's have relative, to isn't it? It's exactly, mean, yeah. 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 You know, what's affordable in Durham is not affordable in London. So I think w- what you have to consider is what's the local condition? What are local wages doing? And reverse engineering, what's the product that that local home buyer or home renter can afford? And it's that act of reverse engineering. I think that's really unique. So... In, in a pipeline that we're looking at today, approximately 80% of the homes we're going to be deli- we intend to deliver would be affordable based on a 35% of income being spent on home occupancy. Mm. So you're accepting reduced levels of rent in turn for reduced risk and, and presumably you're, you're underwriting a, 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 a lower risk of voids, higher retention rates, and an overall, over the long term, uh, a better risk-weighted return. That, that's exactly right. I think, you know, a lot of people focus on just that return element, but they ignore what the risk side of, the, of that other side of the coin is. So if you look in the private rented sector, average tenancy lengths are 18 to 24 months. If you look at the social housing sector, average tenancy lengths are 8 to 10 years. Mm. That's, a, you know, that's a substantial difference in risk, in voids, in repair costs, et cetera, between those two business models. So if you can create a business model that has, on a risk-adjusted basis, an attractive return, that's very interesting for institutional investors. Mm. And then the sorts of investors that are, that are likely to, to, to want to be part of such a strategy are going to be not just the local government pension funds, but, but insurers and, and other, other, other players, potentially, that, that have a, a socially-minded aesthetic to what they're doing. Yeah, I think you, in the first instance, you have to offer a financially viable product. Right? You can't ask a pension fund or an insurance company to compromise on their risk-adjusted returns. So you have to set out your stall and say, this is not a compromise. You're not giving up something by, being, by focusing on the social and environmental outcomes. And then the types of investors that are interested in this, Andrew's exactly right. It's the insurance and pension companies who are looking for inflation-adjusted returns over the long term. They're very difficult to source in today's market. And residential, I think, is a very effective way of doing that. Mm. I mean, talking about inflation, Patrick, it's starting to stalk everybody, isn't it? And, And obviously, there are parts of the real estate world that would welcome inflation because property 
some would argue tends to perform well in a in an inflationary environment it becomes a a, a good hedge but obviously if you're in the construction game uh, and your your screws doorknobs and nails are costing you another 10 15 percent it's it's less of a favorable uh less of a favorable stalker yeah i mean so inflation um you know it, it can be plus and minus i mean frankly as you alluded to earlier the fact that real estate over time has tended to be a very good store of value um, is reassuring both for investors and, frankly, for homeowners. Um, but there's a flip side to that as well, which is those who don't have the chance to own their own home and who sit, who don't get the opportunity to build some equity. Uh, and I think we're very conscious, and particularly the part of the market that we're looking to address, to you know to to see greater participation. And uh, and it speaks, I think, a bit to the levelling up agenda. Uh, that, that you've got home builders who are targeting a part of the market uh, where you know there are more disenfranchised um, operators. But coming back to your question about inflation, I think um, there are certainly some temporary factors, I mean, and these are an issue for everybody. And uh, there'll be an issue, I'm, I've no doubt, for, for Elka too, that um, whilst we are seeing some, whilst there is some price inflation, clearly pressure on materials and, and shortages and issues uh, that are possibly to do with post-pandemic, possibly other things, um, are, are certainly washing through at the moment. Mm. Um, and what inflation does, you know, you can cope with that for a short period of time. And then, frankly, after that, um, of course, it readjusts through land values, So, uh, which is one of the great sort of stabilising mechanisms in, in the residential property market that... Uh, once you know what new costs are when you're mm. reappraising new land. People always say through. that, though, and, and people, forgive me, they, they do, I've heard this a few times, but you, you get the impression that people see land values as a bit of a heat sink for other costs, whether it's tax or inflation. And is that really true? Or, 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 or you know, it's very easy to accuse house builders of being land bankers and all of, all of, the, other, uh, all of the other phrases, but... Is there not a chance people just sit there and wait for things to go back down again or settle? I, I think that is entirely possible. But what what's changed in the industry? And I don't I've, mean land bankers are some sort of euphemism either. <laughs> You're too kind. So um, so I think what has re- what I've seen is really different from when I first joined Crest um, Nicholson in 2006. I think, frankly, it, you know, in the noughties, land speculation was a huge part of the issue. Um, there was Mm. Access to easy credit, um, as you, you know, you referenced yourself, mortgages above, um, ab- you know, above sort of uh, values. Well, yeah, money and that was, was true just being for, given away, wasn't it, by, by the banks? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the same was true for, you know, money to finance land acquisition. So people had very little skin in the game and yeah, they yeah. could speculate wildly. What I think has happened as, you know, a few things have happened. There's been a bit more consolidation. Um, the fact that there is now less access to easy credit i mean credit is cheap but it's not necessarily easy um and so you know that's taken a number of players out of the market as well and of course people have learned some hard and painful lessons so Mm. very many of the people who are at the top of the larger house builders or indeed um, house builders such as ourselves are very well aware of the hazards of chasing land values up Um, and frankly we've found that the the just as the demand for land has tempered a little because of taking the more speculative purchases out, the supply of land has actually improved. So the principle of planning has been generally um, getting easier, um, which is good news, good news for supply, except that 
most of that additional supply is coming from just bigger sites coming forward mm. so the problem with a if, if you've got a if you're a local politician and you need to supply 5000 homes you've got a choice do you do 150 unit schemes and then potentially irritate 100 different sets of your constituents or do you do a couple of two and a half thousand unit schemes and and limit your exposure to maybe a corner of your constituency um and the problem is if you had 150 unit schemes they could all be built at the same time so you'd get your 5000 units pretty quickly if you've got two two and a half thousand year schemes they're coming they're coming through over 10 years each so it makes a very big difference to the level of house building supply the average size of site that is being consented and we've seen that uh, whilst more plots are being consented mm. actually the average site size has risen substantially as well that's interesting and and Shemez, in in terms of your foray into the market with with modern methods of construction what what's been the the driving force behind that i mean people talk about the massive amounts of reduced construction waste, the ability to develop and construct the homes in half the time and all of that sort of stuff, which as an income-driven investor is clearly attractive because if you can get people paying rent quicker, then Mm. your returns are higher, right? It's pretty simple. But did you not see it as a bit of a risk using factory-manufactured homes? I mean, there's clearly a different risk profile for factory housing versus traditional build. Um, we did a, our first MMC deal actually with Ilka, with Patrick and, and his team. And the risk on tendering a contract for 227 homes with a startup MMC builder, Patrick, that's, you know, no offense. You know, it was something we looked at very closely. And, but I think most importantly, with respect to why did we choose Ilka? Why did we take the time to understand those risks? It's for really three reasons. And you picked out one, Andrew. We get the homes much faster. We're income-driven investors. That's a great thing. It's also good for our communities. We need to build homes faster. So if we can deliver new homes, that's great for everyone. The second is quality, and that's something people forget about. You know, the subcontracting industry that normal house builders go through, there's a wide variation of quality. You know, you don't want to buy the house that was built by the bricky on a Friday morning. And that's not the good house to buy. Not if it's the one after the England game. Exactly. And, and you don't know. As a homeowner, you don't know. With the Ilka product, we have a consistency of quality that is very, very high throughout the process. And the first home is the same quality as the last home. So that, I think it's a really important consideration. And the third is just the environmental effect. You know, your tolerances are you know, four or five times better than traditional construction. So the fabric of the building in and of itself creates less carbon through the life cycle of that asset. And I think that's, again, is a really important thing as we think about the future of housing. Mm. And, and in terms of reporting all of this stuff, because clearly Man Group is a business, you manage around 127 billion US dollars of assets and you're being asked to report on all sorts of things right across the board. And, and that's going to be an increasingly complex task. Clearly, in housing at the minute, there's, there's minimal regulation, isn't it, really? Let's be honest. I mean, you've got to do a certain amount of box ticking to get through building regulations. But in terms of ongoing reporting, mm. that doesn't exist at the minute. But it, it might do in a few years' time. I think you're absolutely right. And I don't think it's going to be driven by government, Andrew. I think you're right. I think the regulators, the planners, central government is going to be very slow on this. I think what's going to drive this is investors. Whether you're a PLC and your PLC shareholders want to know about your carbon footprint, or you're an institutional investor like MAN and our 
LPs, our insurance companies and pension funds, want to know how much carbon our products, their investments are creating. It's going to be driven and it's going to be very quick. I think in the next, you know, we've already started reporting carbon. So we have an environmental sustainability report and a social sustainability report mm. for each of our investments. We're already doing that. I think it is going to become common practice by the end of two, three years. And, and Patrick, in terms of, of where house building then sits within that, as it, it's roughly responsible for about a fifth of UK carbon emissions and presumably the ability to be able to say, right, every home I build has got this many widgets, this many wall panels, this many doorknobs, and be able down the line to, to essentially say where they've come from and how much you've wasted in materials, construction, cutting them out. That's potentially quite a huge thing for you to be able to report to people like Shemez. Yeah, and I think, um, I, I agree with you, but I think it's not just about the reporting. I mean, if you look at some of the challenges of building out in a field, um, you know, you only have to look at the, the sort of uh, rather wild weather that we've been experiencing over the last several years to appreciate that um, waste on traditional building sites is a major issue. And I think when I, um, when I left the traditional industry, if you like, about 25% of everything that got delivered into site came out in a skip. Um, which is astonishing and, and frankly, you know, really reflects the fact that traditional methods of construction have really barely changed for the last hundred years. Well, they have changed in that they've, the productivity has got an absolute ton worse. Uh, well, productivity is absolutely a major challenge. And um, I was amused by Shemez's reference to the Friday big bricklayer because I don't, I don't remember many bricklayers coming in on a Friday. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, in, in all seriousness, it, you know, it, productivity is absolutely a challenge. And um, one of the great attractions for me of the modular approach is that, you know, this is a highly productive industry and um, it needs to be. And it's really clear that factory production in clean, you know, weatherproof environments um, where you can deliver high quality, highly engineered outputs to a, you know, a, a known level of demand from the forward selling that we're doing um, is really moving with the tide and and avoiding the pitfalls that you know frankly traditional methods you know see before them with extreme skill shortages mm. we've really struggled to get current generations to um, engage with um, traditional forms of construction um, and here we are with a factory you know employing anything from 500 to a thousand people in the north of england with a highly engineered productive process you know i think we're we're really with the tide on this and um you know this is going to lead us to deliver a product and is leading us to deliver a product that is you know much more um environmentally friendly and and performs to a you know in use to a close to zero carbon uh, level of performance. Mm. Patrick, to your point, I came to visit your factory two years ago. Yeah. I came back just a couple, a month ago. I could see the improvement. I could see the, the improvements in productivity, the improvements in quality control. And to Andrew's, Andrew's point, if I'd gone to a building site a hundred years ago, I would have seen the exact same thing that I saw last month. So I think, I think, I think it's only a question of time before the only product that's in the UK for housing is the MMC product. And, you know, how far away that is, I think, is not that far. I mean, do you, would you go as far to say you think 
factory manufactured housing is, is the only game in town if, if Britain is serious about meeting its climate commitments? I, I think it has to be. I, I, th- I think for, for the vast majority of development, of housing development, you know, that's, you, can, you can now start to see MMC delivering different styles. That's very important for us. We want our customers to think that they're just look, built, walking into a well-designed, thoughtfully proportioned, beautiful home. And I think MMC historically didn't provide that. It was, you know, I think there was the choir was singing quite loudly. I think now you're actually starting to see the pews get involved and say, actually, this is not a bad thing. Yeah, it's a good point. And Patrick, in terms of some of the deals you've been doing recently, there's some serious, there's a serious amount of pipeline now, isn't there? There under, is. Under your belt. There is. And, you know, clearly for the modular manufacturing model to work, there needs to be, you know, a good level of um, factory utilisation. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got a £200 million pipeline, a recent £44 million deal with Gresham House that you've just announced, partnership with Utopia Homes, other deals with uh, Notting, um, on Network Rails site in Nottinghamshire. So some, yeah. some, some big stuff coming forward. No, there really is. And I think, the, you know, the, any, any startup business, first of all, wants to be able to prove its concept. And I think Ilka have done that. Um, they've done that with, uh, with the product they've produced and they've got houses out in, out in you know, people being, living in them and, and enjoying them. Now that we're starting to scale up, uh, as you say, there's a host of great deals being signed and there's others in the pipeline. Mm. And I can, so I can see the top line, if you like, being well looked after um, and, and the demand. And it, and, it, and it makes logical sense to me because this is a, this is a great product um, at a very affordable price uh, and we've got some great partners. Our job now really is to execute on the um, cost side and we're swimming with the tide on that there's there's clearly going to be economies of scale but also as we continue to design and and engineer our product um and evolve the you know the way in which we put things together we'll 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 iron out a number of the sort of startup issues that, that inevitably one one experiences um so i think it's a you know, we're we're on a journey. We're, we're a few years into it. I've I've sort of swanned along now and joined a business that's actually in extremely good shape, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. You know, that execution over the next few years will will take this business to be a meaningful contributor. And I think to your point about whether does modular become a, a, a major part of housing supply, it absolutely can. Because the great thing about a factory model is that you can replicate it. Mm. You know, you've built, you get a factory, you get it humming, and then you and then you build another one just like it. So it's a, you know, it's very scalable, and the, you know, there is really no obvious limit as to where modular could go. And and Shemez, in terms of of to come back to our title, the future of housing, clearly. If you're a volume house builder, you've had a pretty good pandemic in terms of uh, performance, share price, profits. What, what, what do you see the next cycle looking like? Because we've heard about the investments in build to rent and, and a lot of the work that Blackstock has done over the last 10 years, launching the likes of Moda Living, Essential Living, the work we've done with people like Greystar, Granger, Platform. We're responsible for a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the promotion of that sector. Do you see the next cycle being weighted much more towards institutional investment, or, or do you see it continuing to be this this sort of uh, niche that, that sits alongside the listed house building behemoth? Because let's face it, I mean we've we've seen SME builders continue to to fall away. Hmm. 
housing associations politically out of favour don't really know they don't really seem to have a, a current place politically uh, with this current government Labour seems to want to make them uh, into councils or, or they Labour would prefer all, all affordable mm. houses to be, to be managed by councils Conservative government would prefer it all to be managed uh, by somebody else and that presumably you're not you don't need to get involved in the political comments but but presumably that creates an avenue an opportunity for investors such as man group to say hey look we're going to come in we're going to fulfill two needs one is for that sub-market price housing and the other is for investors that have got capital needs to deploy yeah i think that's an inevitability right now i think the amount of institutional capital that's going to be entering into, let's call it the single family space, you know, not, not the large tower blocks that Moda and Gray started, but residential developments, which is the bulk of housing delivery in the UK. And I think it's the preferred form of housing delivery for families in the UK. We're going to see a lot more institutional capital in there. I think we have to be, I think there's a, a we have to do it right. You've seen a lot of negative press in the US about private equity entering into U.S. single-family rental and doing it in a way that's not constructive towards the communities in which they invest. Well, that was because they were largely picking those homes off out of receivership, which is very, very different from, from what you're doing. You're, you're, I mean, think, what you're doing is creating additionality. I think there is that element of picking off. I think there's also an element of what's the rate of rent increases. I think there's the element of how do you actually manage and maintain those homes and provide good customer service. You know, how do you actually manage the community? You know, how do you deal with antisocial behavior? I mean, that's that's something that as an investor and in one of your developments, you have to think about. Yeah. And yeah. I think private equity in the U.S. did a very poor job of that. I think they did a very poor job. I think there is a real opportunity in the U.K. for private capital to get involved in single family rental and to demonstrate that you can do it in a way that can generate attractive returns for investors over a decent horizon. And I think that's one of the things that we've been very lucky. Our investors are willing to look over the medium to long term as to how they generate their returns as opposed to the short term. How quickly can I raise the rents? How can I keep my CapEx or my OpEx to an absolute minimum to, increase, to make my margins look great? I think if you have the right type of investors entering to this sector, we can really create a sustainable investment proposition that will compete against the PLC mm. house builders. And Patrick has a huge part to play in that because right now, if I'm trying to bid land against a house builder, I will lose because their, their delivery model is 10, 15% cheaper than what I can do now because a traditional build cannot compete with the PLC house builder. And, and Patrick, your product coming out of the factory door doesn't compete with the cost of production for a house builder. If we can get more value... Well, Patrick, you, you probably argue slightly differently when you're on that point. Well, um, it, yes and no, because I think the, the fact of the matter is is that um, we, we can compete clearly in terms of being prepared to pay the market price, and, and, and obviously land is a residual valuation, we have to do that. But where Chavez is right is that we need to build our margin. So um, it's, it's the other side of the coin, is that we're, we can secure land, but we need to grow the margins to a, an acceptable level. Now, the, you know, the great thing about this particular proposition, you know, thinking back to the risk-adjusted um, returns that we're looking for, is this is a very capital-light model. Um, because we are selling in large part package deals with um, back-to-back land uh, land payment and receipt um, and uh, looking to 
to drive a you know a, an acceptable margin for the for the level level of risk and the level of capital um, invested. So, you know, we've got some work to do. Um, as I say, I think I think we have the runway to do it. We have the volume, which is critical. We have the productivity gains that are there to be had. The benefits of automation, the benefits of our learning. Um, and and sort of uh, value engineering to make sure that our designs you know take into account lessons that we've learned from the past so you know we've got a really good um, opportunity here and I think um, yes we do you know there is work to do but it's all within our gift to to do it mm. and and in terms of of products Chimez given your focus on being a long-term owner are you having to be more discerning about the actual product because it it strikes me that there are going to be some investors in this marketplace that that are going to be spending a fair bit more capex on capex over the next ten years than, than they potentially have, have underwritten simply because they've been buying cruddy stock off the market at mm. a discount. I think that's right. I th- you know we we've chosen to go the new build route. We by the end of the summer we should have about 1,500 homes in, in delivery just in this year alone. So that's a great start for us. Quality that comes with working with quality manufacturers like Yelka is a big part of allowing us to maintain a reasonable CapEx and OpEx cost over the next 10 years. And I well, think it's about certainty, isn't it? Exactly. And good quality product, well-manufactured, very limited snagging. And again, coming back to that quality point that the factory can produce and using materials that are of a, of a reasonable quality. You know, we produce stock that our affordable housing stock is of much better quality than traditional affordable housing stock. It will just age a lot better. And I think that's very important when you have that medium term horizon. Mm. So just finally then, Patrick, what, what do you, what, what can we expect? Give us a couple of predictions for the next, next few years then in, in terms of both the, the listed house building sector that, that you've obviously been a part of for so many years and, and the new innovative area that that seems to have tempted you back to the fray. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I I think what we are just starting to see is that the listed house builders are all putting their toe in the water as to where they go next with forms of construction. So um, very many of the listed house builders are doing what I would consider to be broadly R&D. So it's a few tens of units here and there, using in some instances not very modern methods you know timber frame sort of goes back frankly to the time of the normans mm. i mean um, r&d they, they kind of they do rowing and drinking probably yeah. that's the r&d the house building industry does. so so i think yes you're probably right but i think so but p- people are starting to take notes and i think the fact that government you know you think about the government's agenda mm. you know leveling up productivity well they're the phrases delivery. does the government really want to do that is well, the government well, th- is this current government going to win any votes by building uh, homes some people would say no. Well, well, interestingly enough, I think um, there, you know, there's a couple of things to that. Firstly, the level of home ownership has dropped quite significantly. So there's a, there's actually a, a significant number of um, disenfranchised. Mm. And it's and a double-edged sword, is it? Because homeowners vote, or more likely to vote conservative. Data shows that, but equally. Conservative voters typically are less inclined to want any development. I, I think there's a good reason for that. Most development isn't that attractive, right? It's expensive. Their kids can't afford to live in it. And it's not very well done or thoughtful. And, and I think if you offer people a product that is affordable, their kids can live in it, it's well designed, and it's you know long-term, you know, environmentally friendly and, and responsible, socially responsible, I think 
NIMBYs turn into YIMBYs very quickly. Well, that's the key that unlocks the door, isn't it? That, that sense of being able to say, do you support this? It's going to have a, it, it will be operationally net zero. It's going to be uh, affordable for affordable. your kid who's a teacher or a nurse. And, and I think, I think this is coming. I mean, I, I do actually think that the politics, you know, housing was never really that political. It's become much more political and it's become much more political because it's so expensive. Mm. Um, and so I do think that the disenfranchised are becoming an, an increasingly relevant group from a political point of view. I do think it has a large part to play. If we want to drive productivity in the country, I think the fact that people have got a decent home to work in um, or to return to, and of course, and I say work in, actually, that's been the experience for very much the last several years. Well, I'd stress Um, we are in human form together in this room. We're not working from home or using any kind of Zoom paraphernalia, which you can hear in the quality of the audio. Indeed, but, but we would contemplate spending a day or two working from home. So I do think, you know, it's increasingly uh, and we've seen it you know to some extent in the flurry of activity in the mm. market this year people, you can't people, make a factory built house in your front room can you patrick no you absolutely can't <laughs> but what you can do is provide for the very many people who can do their work or some of their work from home and perhaps you know yes absolutely th- things like you know so you think about the cost of childcare, for example the increasing need maybe to um look after an elderly Mm. Um, relative etc these are some of the massive societal challenges so absolutely i I do think that uh i do think the government for you know for what it's worth is is genuine in terms of seeking to drive um output i do think that modular has to be part of that solution Uh, and i do think frankly that we can still build beautiful high quality homes and do so in a very economic uh, and efficient manner Mm, mm. And, and and that Shemes, just to just to finish um that was also one of your observations wasn't it that that design quality that challenge that some people throw at factory manufactured housing that it all looks the same it all looks a bit unappealing actually that's a bit of a, a bit of an outdated stereotype yeah i think it's, i i think that's changing very quickly i think in a couple of years we are going to see a lot more innovation. I think it was important for the MMC industry to, to secure volume, to secure supply, to iron out the construction challenges. And I think we're moving to version 2.0 of that product. And I think it'll be a product that will compete with anything traditional. Mm. I, I think from our perspective, where we see the world evolving over the next five years is the number of investors who want to deliver a social return. I think you can't say to people, I'm going to build a house now as an investor and it's going to be affordable to only 10% of the population. I think that is an outdated way of delivering returns to your investors. I think investors will ask for a lot more around what are you doing to tackle these societal challenges that Patrick has set out? What are you doing to tackle this chronic problem of affordability? And what are you doing around the environment? And until you, if you can't answer those as an asset manager, as an investment manager, I, I think you're going to be out of the game very quickly. Well, that's a fantastic place to leave it. So thank you very much to Shemez Alibi from Man Group and from Patrick Bergen from Ilka Homes. Um, let's continue the debate online. Please do subscribe uh, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud to PropCast. And do stay tuned uh, and we'll be back with another Future of Housing podcast in a week's time. I'm Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks a lot to our guests for coming into our actual office in human form. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much.